0: I'm excited to be here this morning. Uh, I would be much more excited, of course, if we're all gathered physically together uh, in the building, but uh, not being able to do that uh, yet, uh, I am excited to, to be here. And at, at times it seems that uh, we may be in a season where we think there's something very significant coming ahead. Uh, there is a number of unknowns of what, what will happen post pandemic? There's been talk of that, of course, of, of how that will, not only how will the measures be eased up and to what, what degree and, and how fast and so forth, but what will the world look like post COVID-19? Will the world be forever changed? Financial systems different, governments and how they operate and, and what they think and expect might be different. Businesses forever changed in some ways, um, even socially in, in people and so forth. Uh, not to mention, you know, some of the negative fallout, shall we say, that's been happened due to prolonged uh, isolation. But there's numerous times in history where such uh, has happened, where there is the end of one era and the beginning of another era. And our text today, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, describes such an era, or such a transition from one era to another. Uh, Before we begin reading, we're going to go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and so I encourage you to open your Bibles and go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. It's the fifth book, uh, sometimes called as the fifth book of Moses. It's the fifth book from the beginning of the Bible. Uh, And uh, while you're going there, I'll give a bit of an introduction into what this book is about. Uh, It's a monumental time in the history of the children of Israel. Uh, They have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years due to their unbelief, due to their stubbornness in wanting to enter the promised land, in not wanting to enter the promised land 40 years prior when God brought them to the brink of that. That could have been the beginning of an era uh, that he intended for them, Uh, but they were motivated by fear uh, and uh, false presentation of the facts shall we say Uh, and uh, so they declined to enter in and so the Lord had for them 40 years of wandering in the wilderness so that all that were in that generation from uh, 20 years old and upward uh, had to die uh, in the wilderness and so this is the place where the book of Deuteronomy begins the 40 years are now almost all done all of those in that previous generation have died except for Moses and Joshua and Caleb. And the entire book of Deuteronomy then is Moses giving his final speech to this new generation, uh, reminding them of their past and looking forward into the future. And so let's begin reading with verse 1 in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land, whither you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Here, Therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets, between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. This is Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one through nine. There's a number of themes that we're going to draw from this and other connecting scriptures of how this can be uh, significant for our own lives, uh, for everyone that uh, hears that is, within the hearing of the preaching of the Word uh, this morning. There is something in the Scriptures for you personally. Uh, the first statement that I want to bring your attention to, as uh, Moses is describing commandments and statutes and judgments, um, that he is repeating the, the, the book of Deuteronomy, the, the name Deuteronomy refers to, in a sense, the repeating of the law. And he is re-summarizing or repeating many things that were already given before. Because remember, this is a new generation. So a number of them have not heard the previous description of the law. They were not there when the Ten Commandments were given, delivered to Moses. And Moses delivered it uh, to the people. They would have certainly heard about it, no doubt, from their parents. Uh, And so Moses is saying it again, so they hear it firsthand uh, from Moses. The passage that we have read doesn't elaborate on all of what the details of the commandments are, but we've got some principles of what God expects, of uh, primarily the kind of people he wants us to be, or the kind of people he wants us to become, and the kinds of things he wants us to do. So let's look at verse 2, where he says, "...that you might fear the Lord thy God, to keep his statutes and his judgments." So the first thing that Moses describes here is in terms of fear. Fear has two meanings. The first one is to be afraid, to be uh, terrorized, in a sense having a measure of terror and being frightened. And this applies... Uh, in our relationship with God, primarily if we are, shall we say, on the wrong side of our relationship with God. Meaning mean, we, we, we don't have a good relationship. Maybe you're in rebellion with God, or you're at a place where you're ignoring God and uh, walking away from Him. There are many stories in the Bible that describes people that were afraid of God or responded in fear. Um, one comes to mind, shall we say, Jonah, when he heard the word of the Lord, he, in a sense, wanted to escape as he was afraid of what God was asking him to do, other people respond out of fear. Uh, we we fear the things that we don't know. Uh, the coronavirus was very much feared um, when, especially because many things were unknown. And as we come to know something and understand it, then there's room for less fear because then we can understand the nature uh, of of that. The fear of God in the sense of being afraid of him is appropriate for those that are in rebellion and in sin against God because there is something very real to be afraid of, and that is eternal judgment because we will be judged for our actions, for every thought, for every deed, everything that we think about. We will be judged. You will be judged. No one will escape. And that is certainly something that is right to be afraid of. But there's another meaning of the word fear, and that is that of reverence and respect. And this certainly applies in our relationship with God at all times. Those that are his children, we reverence God and we respect him because he is the most high God. There is no one greater than him. And this sense of awe is what should grip us when we behold the character of God, when we behold his nature and his power and his love and his wonder. And we get a sense of that a little bit when we behold, when we look at and experience beautiful things in the creation. When we stand at the edge of a cliff and look at a beautiful landscape that is below. It's it's sort of this jaw-dropping beauty. Or when someone accomplishes something fantastic or surprising we, our natural reaction is this sense of awe and our jaw drops well that and so much more is applicable when we consider who god is and his greatness there are wonderful descriptions in the scriptures uh, that give us a little sense of the glory of god the glory of his character in that of uh, mercy and love and justice and righteousness and, and uh, compassion and forgiveness. Uh, that of his power and the things that he can do and the forces of nature. There's descriptions uh, about that. The glory surrounding the, th- the throne room of God and the uh, angelic beings crying holy, holy, holy and the brightness of his uh, appearance and so forth. All of that is very much worthy of our awe-inspiring reverence uh, to God. But there's more, because uh, if we look at verse uh, 5, addresses this concept of loving God. So the first was the description of fearing God, and then we move on to loving God. And so if we just dwell a few moments on the contrast between this element of fear and reverence, but also that of love. That of love is a much warmer nature in the relationship. And that's where God wants us to be there as well uh, with him because he is a God of love and loves us and wants us to love him. And in fact, if we would contrast these two things, the Apostle uh, John writes about this. He was very close to the Lord and knew him. Jesus said, "'If you've seen me, you've seen the Father.'" And uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 4:18 he says there is no fear in love but perfect love casteth out fear he that feareth is not made perfect in love uh, because fear hath torment uh, i'm i'm quoting it and i may have done some of it in the wrong order here but this this element that there there's a bit of a tension or shall we say opposite nature between uh, fearing someone and loving someone and uh, one would say, well, you, you can't really do both at the same time. Uh, and to a certain degree, you can. But uh, love is the higher virtue. Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love is the greatest virtue above all. That's why God describes himself is that he is love, the highest virtue. Uh, and so we are to worship God out of fear and reverence and... And even much more out of love, and perhaps there's a, a gauge, if you could call it a, a thermometer, between these two extremes. Where are you at in your relationship with God? Is it described more in in terms primarily that of fear and being afraid of His judgment uh, and so forth? In fact, if we would look at uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, sorry, the Apostle John addresses that here in this chapter. If we would look at that a little bit more. Uh, verse 17 in 1 John 4. Herein is our love made perfect, in the sense of complete, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Imagine that. Boldness in the day of judgment. The day of judgment is something to be uh, afraid of, in a sense, and, and uh, recognize where we stand before God. We are, we are to be judged. That's a scary thing. But because of love, because we love the judge, as a father, that is an entirely different uh, relationship that gives us this measure of boldness, meaning a sense of confidence. We're not talking about arrogance here or overconfidence in who we are and what we have achieved. Uh, standing before God would certainly put all of that in place as we fall on our face before him in worship, uh, voluntarily or involuntarily. It will happen uh, that we humble ourselves before him. But that we may have a confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. And then is this verse, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Where is your walk with God? Is it described more in terms of love or in terms of fear? Let us move, let it grow more into that of passionate love and desire and awe-inspired uh, worship. Now let's move on to the main essence of the, the teaching here. This word is used in verse three and in verse four. And that is the word "here." Uh, in Hebrew, it's the word "shama if I'm pronouncing it correctly, something like that. But it it means not merely to listen and uh, just hear a sound and kind of pay attention to it or not pay attention to it, but it's very much linked with the concept of obedience. The point of hearing here is to obey. So this is a very important type of hearing, of active listening, not only with our ears but with our mind to capture the ideas and the concepts Because there is an intended response, that of obedience and faith and trust in the things that God is saying. And in verse 3, we we get a a sense of a glimpse of one element of the character of God. One lens, which is, or shall we say, one question. You know, when we read the scriptures, it's always good to have some questions in mind, uh, whether consciously or somewhat subconsciously. Uh, sometimes we're looking, maybe looking for comfort, and so I'm going to find, look for verses that give me comfort and so forth, and that's certainly appropriate. But when we read the scripture, a good uh, thing to look for would be, what does this scripture tell me about the character and the nature of God? And we have some clues here in this, in verse 3, where he says, The purpose of hearing and obeying is so that it may be well with thee. Because God is God of love and described as our Father, and in particular with Israel, the nation of Israel, he had a particular purpose for them uh, at this time and place in history, bringing them to this land that he promised to Abraham so many uh, hundreds of years prior, that it may be well with thee. And that's also true for each of us. It is God's desire that life goes well with us. That doesn't mean, we want to make sure we don't misunderstand that, that we just have a happy-go-lucky, easy life with no pain and difficulty or stress. That's not what that means. But that we have life and meaningful relationship with him, with God, that it may be well with us. And indeed, to obey these commandments is tends to life. You know, the parameters that support life are fairly narrow. We know that in the physical world, um, those that are into science and apologetics and that sort of thing, uh, you, you will know that the, the universe and our world operates on a set of very narrow parameters. Um, There's some, I don't remember what the, the number is, if it's a hundred or more or less, um, very specific uh, constants and and very important measures in, of formulas and, and so forth, of balance of the various forces in nature. You know, the, the force of gravity and, and the, the heat and the temperature and the speed of the earth and various things functioning in our solar system, they're all very, very finely tuned in order to support life. A very set of narrow parameters. And if any one of those parameters were to only be changed by a, a small percentage or even a fraction of a percentage... Uh, we are told by the scientists that life would be impossible. So you can just sort of imagine how masterful, uh, engineered God has created the universe with these set of parameters that support life. Um, well, that is true not only in the physical life, that is true in the spiritual life. That there are a certain set of parameters that support life. And God is the one that has uh, determined what those are. Uh, because he's the giver and the author of life. And so it's not, we, we can't just arbitrarily tweak those parameters or, or want to run outside of those boundaries uh, morally or spiritually and not expect negative consequences that ultimately lead to death. We, we somewhat know that, and, and of course when we train our children, we teach them in those parameters. One of the most obvious being, you don't run out into the traffic because that's one of those boundaries and parameters that will lead to death. And so you have to stay where it's safe in order to stay alive and not get hurt. Well, so much more that is true spiritually uh, in our life that extends not only on this earth, but intended into eternity. And so it's important to hear and to obey the things that God has given for the purpose that it may be well uh, with us. Let's start uh, looking into verse 4 a little bit more detailed here. As God describes uh, more of his nature, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is in contrast to the multitude of idols that were in the nations uh, round about them. Each one had their own sets of idols um, that did different things. But he describes God, God describes himself in terms of one and in further scriptures and we can put together a picture that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one essence, one being, one God. And the command then to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might rather than looking at this primarily as a command, let's look at this in terms of the kind of person God wants us to be the kind of person he wants us to become. there are other commands that talk about what we should do but first let's talk about what, how the kind of person God wants us to be and he uses this word love um, that's significant love is the highest, Uh, virtue, and it's the most powerful motivator. Fear is a very powerful motivator as well, but love is a greater, uh, more virtuous motivator than merely fear. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he uses the word love. And so we are to become people who love God with all our heart and soul uh, and with all our might. And we're going to get into some of the details of What that looks like, the kind of person we are to be, the kind of virtues we are becoming, the kind of uh, vices to set aside and to reject and to overcome and to resist in order to make room by the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed and become the kind of people he wants us to be. And so, of course, what we dwell on, what we think about, is a big influence on that. That's why it's that we hear. Hear addresses in verse 3 and in verse 4, where he says, Hear, therefore, and hear, O Israel. What are your ears and your brain tuned into? Because the things that influence you, the things that you hear, the things that you are exposed to intentionally or haphazardly, unintentionally, influences the kind of person you become. There's a quote um, that I will combine somewhat or or adjust a little bit. Uh, We are not what we think we are as much as we are what we think. Now, does that sound confusing? Let's try that again. We are not so much what we think we are, but we are... What we think, often we may have an overinflated view of what we are. And so in that sense, we're not so much what we think we are, if we think we're smart, if we think we're, we're uh, ingenu- uh, have uh, ingenuity and so forth, we tend to maybe overinflate our abilities. Uh, a, a quote I heard earlier this week is, "The average person would assess themselves as being above average." Well, that's a contradiction of terms. If everybody considers themselves above average, then that's a new average and so everyone is still average. But that that just speaks to our overinflated ego and how we view ourselves, typically morally. Sometimes maybe with a skill set we might uh, underrate ourselves, you know, and maybe you have a real gift of music and playing the piano, and it could be well used in the church when we get back together again, but you decide to put yourself down and say, no, no, I'm not good enough, I can't do that. Or maybe some other job, you, you know, you're asked to pray, or you're asked to teach, or you're asked to look after uh, children, or disciple someone, or or lead a small group in a Bible study, and, and so forth. And these skills, and sometimes we may tend to downplay ourselves and say, no, I, I can't do that. I'm not good enough, um, but you can learn, and would encourage that to to develop uh, those skills with experience and under the help of a mentor and, and so forth. But typically, morally, we may over-inflate our status. We think we're pretty good people, and we're not as bad as someone else, because we tend to compare ourselves to someone who's worse uh, morally, uh, and that's a common human trait. But we are what we think. And so let's influence, let's bring good exposure and influences into our life. The Word of God, for example. The things that we hear have an influence on our mind. And the kind of person we become. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. He uses three descriptive words here. I don't think it's an accident that he uses three descriptive words. Because we are also, God is a triune being, we are also a triune being in the sense, humans, in the sense that we have a body, soul, and spirit. And it may be difficult, it's easy to identify what the body is, but to differentiate exactly well, what is soul, what is spirit, what belongs to this category, what belongs to that category. We may have difficulty differentiating this too. Well, what belongs to the category of heart versus soul? And Jesus elaborates on this a little bit more, actually, when he repeats this commandment, uh, or this passage when he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Um, Jesus quotes this passage where he says you are, and he's, there he uses four descriptive words in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. If you want to turn there, you can read it. Mark 12, verse 30. Um, that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So that's a little bit more descriptive as he elaborates on these three and uses four descriptive words. And while it's maybe not so uh, important to break down exactly what each of these words mean, we get the idea here that it's all-encompassing with all of our being, with everything that we have. But let's look at some of it in detail uh, as well. Uh, With all thine heart... You know, sometimes we use the heart to describe emotions and passions and so forth, but I would ascribe that more to the description of soul. Um, And heart can uh, include the idea of mind. And so I think Jesus breaks this out here in one of the the four descriptive words when he uses both the word heart and mind. And so we get this idea that love, because remember, he's using the word love here. But love is not only an emotion and something that we feel uh, in with our hearts or with our emotions and our feelings. Of course, when the world uh, presents romantic stories, it's all always about falling in love and, and people can't help themselves and, and things just sort of happen uh, and, and people fall in love. But th- that's different than what the Bible is describing here in terms of loving God. There's an intentionality, there's decision involved. But it involves the whole person, including our emotions uh, and our feelings. But much more beyond that, including our mind, the intellect, the rational mind, uh, the logical mind, we are to love God with all of that as well. Uh, And the soul, this word soul um, in the Hebrew literally means to breathe, or it's connected with this idea of breathing, Um, And sometimes it's translated as breath of life in the Genesis 1 during the creation. That word is used a lot there when he's creating different things that have breath, other creatures. And man became a living soul uh, when God breathed into man as he made Adam so that's another use of this word soul in a sense. So it means with all of our breath and the fact that we are alive. We're not just dead objects here and we are not just serving a, a, a dead religion in a dead God. But there is life here. There is breathing, living, breathing life And so that figuratively can imply things like creative expression and things that we pursue passionately um, and the the, the fact that we are alive with vitality uh, and and life. And then this word might uh, literally uh, connects with this idea of force. Um, So we might think of physical force, you know, with all our strength, Um, We think of physical strength to serve God or to love God with our body and the things that we do and how we present our bodies and how we act and behave and so forth. So that would certainly be one application of that. But beyond just physical strength, it also connects to this idea of emotional strength, that of perseverance, that of in for the long haul and when the going is difficult to persevere. That takes strength to fight against temptation not only for five minutes, but for hours and days and weeks, however long that temptation is there, until it is overcome. That takes a tremendous amount of strength. And I would argue that kind of strength is much more important and uh, much more mature and takes a lot more to live life in that kind of perseverance, that of moral perseverance and spiritual perseverance. But not only in the battle against temptation, but it could be also in other areas of perseverance that we'll get into in the application. But persevering in prayer, shall we say, persevering in the word, it takes this measure of consistent perseverance and strength. Uh, that takes effort, uh, that type of force. And so we get this idea that we are to passionately love God, passionately pursue God he pursues us we pursue him in return Uh, and uh, then we can move on to what he says now why so part of loving him what does this mean and what does it look like Uh, verse 6 and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart that we are to love the words of God that he has given that they shall be in our heart Again, the idea of heart here includes the idea of mind. So it's not just—includes uh, it the idea of memorizing Scripture, reading Scripture, memorizing concepts, doing diligent study, making connections between this Scripture and the other Scripture, and that story and this story and so forth. This is part of um, the words of God being in our heart, being in our mind— Uh, Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That's really important. One great way of applying this scripture. Uh, Verse 9 talks about writing these things on the posts of your house and on your gates. And so even the messages that are on the walls in our house. What kind of artwork is hanging there? What kind of uh, text and words? Sometimes there's nice pictures with, with a Bible verse and so forth. Those things are great. Or some sort of other artistic expression that reinforces the importance of the Word of God. And if there's other things hanging there that may be in contrast to the Word of God, maybe that tells us something about what we value. I heard a statement once that said, if you want to know what your teenager's idols are, is look at the walls of their room, and what kind of posters do they have hanging there? Uh, maybe it's posters of celebrities, posters of music stars and, and movies, and, and various things like that. Well, that connects to idolatry, and we'll talk a little bit about idolatry, because that's something that the children of Israel struggled against, um, and that's not new uh, for us either. And so we can sort of take a look at what we worship, what we value, what we love, gives evidence into what's even on the walls in our home. And the the things that we choose to, to purchase and do. But we can be intentional on that. And the whole, part of the whole point here is making things visible as reminders for us of how important it is the Word of God. Now we can move on into Verse 7, about what we are to do. Remember, we talked about the kind of people we are to be, that of growing in virtue and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That relates then, flows out of that, the kind of things that we are to do. Teach them diligently unto thy children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so, in our shall we say, we've got a specific application for those that are parents. Uh, up until now, we've been talking about things that apply to everybody. Um, but now, for the next few minutes, we have a particular application that uh, Moses is saying, that God is saying, that is very applicable to those that are raising children, in training them, in teaching them in the ways of the Lord, in all of our walk um, of life. Uh, the word diligence is used here, so there's some intentionality here. It doesn't just happen, ha- it's not just haphazardly and by accident and when we have a chance and and when we have a few uh, minutes here or there. This is priority. This is the reason for our existence, shall we say, or part of the reason for our existence, Are calling um, at this particular season of life, those of us that are in the season of training uh, children. Um, we have... I'm just trying to think of uh, what order to describe this in. In in Colossians, maybe, we'll go to, because there's some practical statements um, about this. Colossians chapter 3, we can begin with verse 18, describes the functioning of families here. And I think this is especially applicable now because we're in a season— unprecedented, where maybe we're, we're some maybe feel stuck at home with our children a lot more than we normally would be uh, for those that are home all the time with their children, um, with children not being able to go to school and, and many working from home and sort of thing, or, or some uh, maybe not working at all uh, because of the business being shut down. And so in a sense, that puts extra pressure on the family dynamic because we're with each other a lot more than we might be used to. And so then uh, maybe we feel a little bit more edgy and, and things maybe don't always go quite as smooth. And, and the relationships between the children, the multiple siblings, maybe there's more um, uh, fights and arguments going on because of the close quarters and, and so forth. And so here's a, a perfect opportunity uh, for those of us that are in the family dynamic to utilize this opportunity, let's call it an opportunity rather than being stuck with one another, in exercising what God has called us to do and the kind of people and family that he would want us to become in how to relate one to another and love one another such uh, that it is more beautiful than it is uh, today or has been in recent weeks, shall we say. Verse 18, Colossians chapter 3. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Something for everyone in the family here. Let's begin with the marriage relationship. The beauty of the marriage relationship is the best gift that we as parents give to our children because it's from observing two adults living in the home who love one another who've committed their lives to each other how they they learn so much from how we interact probably a lot more than we realize and maybe more than we would like them to learn especially from our negative things when we don't interact so well one with another as husband and wife But think about it. They learn love. They learn commitment. They learn patience. They learn uh, forbearance. They learn what it means to solve conflict when there is conflict, and they observe—that's a big one—they observe how parents solve conflict among themselves between husband and wife. That has a huge imprint on the child and on, on how they view conflict and how they process conflict and how they Try to solve conflict or maybe avoid conflict or run away from conflict or and, and so forth. They, they learn forgiveness. Uh, they learn how to apologize. They learn how to not hold grudges and bitter and not to bring up past uh, things that should have been settled and buried and forgiven and so forth. Or they may learn the opposite of all of these things. If, if our uh, marriage relationship is not on track in the way God would want us to function as husband and wife. And so in that sense, we 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 have a limited time as husband and wife to get our act together, shall we say, but not just our act to get our genuine relationship together because our children are growing up and they're seeing these things every day. And so it's all the more reason for us to to trust in God and to call upon Him of what kind of people we are to be. And we may need help in that from time to time. We may need the support of other parents um, or pastors or counselors uh, for a season or mentors in, in getting us through maybe a difficult season of what kind of people we are as parents, uh, as husband and wife, in order to fulfill this mandate. But then we also have children. Obey your parents in all things. And so there will be some children and youth listening right now. This is for you specifically Um, Because the way you conduct yourself now... Has an influence on how you, the kind of person you become in the future. Even though you think that, well, right now you can uh, be rebellious and selfish and do your own thing and then suddenly someday you're gonna flip the switch and you're just gonna be this good, mature person that's gonna be able to have a stable marriage and, and be a great parent and be a good employee and so forth. Even though right now you're the opposite of all of those things. Well, it doesn't work that <laughs> quite so simply. Uh, it requires the power of God in transforming your life and that transformation begins today in small decisions by turning your heart to him and hearing what the word of the Lord is for you and turning your heart to him because it's the most beautiful thing that you will ever do, and I encourage you to begin that uh, today. The kinds of things that we do with our children, this idea here all day long, when you... Uh, Talk of them in verse 7. right? Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Basically, it's all day long. Things that we talk about. Talk about the Lord. Times that we have for family devotions, for reading the scriptures, for singing together, for praying together. Uh, Times when we go out into nature and describe the glory of God in how things function and in the beauty of how things look. Um, and in the fun things that we do and playing to ga- games together as a family and, and watching a, a healthy, a wholesome movie and, and reading good stories and books or listening to audio books and so forth, um, uh, going for a bike ride, uh, playing sports, whatever, uh, with our children, healthy activities that's all about interaction that stirs up things, uh, things get us, uh, causes maybe to be angry for a moment and how we process that anger and express it in a healthy way. Um, and so forth, bring peace into a situation. These are all healthy family dynamics that fulfill this mandate of training our children in the ways of the Lord. And then there's intentional areas of of uh, teaching them whether it's specific tasks that require an explanation and a demonstration and then engaging them in the task and helping them along and then observing them from time to time to ensure that they're still doing that task. That's an area of of discipleship, shall we say. And sometimes we, we may tend to avoid giving our children tasks because they can't do it perfectly. You know, they're immature and their muscles and their brain is not developed well enough to do it and, and it's faster for us to do it ourselves. And so we would say, uh, I'll just I'll just do it myself. You know, you just go ahead and play um, and, and leave me alone so that I can focus on this task. Well, we're missing out as parents if we have that. Sometimes we may need to do that. But for the most part, can we involve our children in the normal tasks of the day? Uh, whether it's... Uh, uh, preparing something in the kitchen, or, or setting the table, or cleaning up from the table, or washing the dishes, or putting the dishes away, um, or home maintenance tasks, and so forth. There are certain stages and ages when children express a natural curiosity and desire to come alongside us and do these things. And if we would quash that and squelch that at that time, saying, well, you can't do it yet, because usually that interest exceeds their ability, meaning that interest happens sooner than they can actually do it. But that's precisely a great opportunity to begin training in small steps as it begins the relationship, that of trust and training and and intimacy and so forth. And there's risk. Of course, it will take us a lot longer to do the task. They they may break things, they may damage things, and so forth. And so that develops character in us, in, in the things that we value. Do we value our relationship with them, or do we value the thing that was just broken uh, more than that, And and so forth? Lots of learning, not only for the children, but for us as parents, as God uses these, shall we say, sometimes difficult forces within us. Or external to us to shape character in us into the kind of people we are to be. Into the kind of people we are becoming. And so in that sense, we let our children make mistakes. Mistakes that we can afford or they can afford to make and learn from them. Uh, They learn a lot. We learn a lot from mistakes. More than things that are executed perfectly at times. All right? But of course, talking about perfection... We need also a lot of grace in parenting. And sometimes we may miss this element. And in one sense, maybe this is the most important. Because God, we are in an age of grace. God extends so much grace to us. And we can demonstrate grace to our children. It's not about perfect performance and executing things perfectly. And then when they don't, we come down hard on them in judgment. See, I told you you couldn't do it. You should have let me do it myself. You know, uh, leave it alone. Now i got to fix it, this mess that you just made, and so forth. That's not a graceful response to what has happened. Maybe it's something very painful that has just happened to us in, in what they have broken or an opportunity that we've missed because of the delay of our children or whatever the case may be. But it's precisely those opportunities that demonstrate the grace of God. And the forbearance and forgiveness, rather than uh, vices that are, are judgmental or insulting to our children, telling them that they're no good and, and they'll never amount to anything and, and so forth. These, these are very damaging statements to our children that can have lifelong imprints uh, on their hearts. God forgive us when we have said or implied such things uh, to our children. We are flawed as well, and we need the grace of God in our own lives, in our own relationships, in our own performance or lack thereof. And what better way to demonstrate that in than in the relationship uh, with our children, uh, not to be nagging and judgmental and bitter and, and, and so forth. Sounds like a daunting task, as it is. It's the greatest and most difficult calling we have in life. And therefore, you're not expected to do it alone. You're not expected to figure things out on your own and only learn from your own mistakes. You can learn from others that have gone before us. You can network with other parents. We have a church library that has resources and materials uh, that can help with that. Uh, A few weeks ago, I think it was on uh, April the 8th, you can look that up. There was an email that went out to all the couples with some links to, to resources. Some of those uh, focus on the family, for example, being uh, one such organization. And then there's numerous others. And of course, we need to be discerning, as we do with any material that we look at. Um, does it line up with our understanding of the Scripture? And at times, we need to be challenged in how we look at things uh, in order to see things more correctly uh, in the Scriptures. And we can learn, be discipled uh, along those lines with meaningful relationships with other parents uh, who have experience before us, uh, as well as resources that we can read or watch or, or learn from in that way. And so I certainly encourage um, all of that. Um, it's hard work, but it's the most important job we have. You know, how much how much time have you studied... To do the job that you have, you've gone through school, you maybe went through college or university, and took extra training courses and so forth in order to do to excel or to have uh, the ability to do a certain task. How much more important is it to raise our children in the ways of the Lord? And what sort of training have you taken or will you take, and self study and, and, and various things like that, to prepare you and equip you for that task? Why? Why would we do that? Because children are a kingdom issue. Children are, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Psalm 127. I'm going to go to that one. If you want to go there, you can. 127, verse 4. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. We're in a spiritual battle and part of the weaponry that God has given us shall we say are the arrows of our children that will be launched at a time to a time and a place that we will never see god has planned it that way and so we have an important job of preparing them and they will be launched uh, the children are they're, they're not ours to own they're not ours to control but they're borrowed for a while for us to train and to teach And then to send to a place and a time that we will never be, that we can't be. And in a sense, that's one of the ways in which God has intended to grow the church. By Christian parents raising children who choose to follow the Lord. It's not the only way, of course, because we are to evangelize those that are outside the realm of Christianity. Those parents who are not Christian and children that are not grown up in the Christian family. And by being a loving Christian family is a great example of what that can look like, as well as training our children in the ways of the Lord to reach out uh, to others. But of course, there are those that don't have children. And uh, there may be those that um, need some comfort as maybe you're past the stage of raising children. And a message like this, or reading things like this, or maybe even seeing what you see, um, may give you some regrets of your own parenting. And I encourage you to take comfort from the Scriptures, because no one is perfect. Receive forgiveness from the Lord. Repent where that is uh, necessary. And rebuild where that is possible. As God is a God of redemption, redemption, And wherever you're at in the life of the relationship with your adult children, maybe things have turned out differently than you expected. Maybe your children have made choices that have given you many tears and grief. Maybe there's a great chasm of relationship that you intended and hoped for closeness with your adult children. And there's just great separation and a great chasm even though they might only live in the same they might live in the same city but the relationship is so far apart maybe there's ways that god would want to redeem that and rebuild and heal that which has been harmed or hurt as long as they're still alive there's opportunity for that there may be those that it's difficult to hear a message like this because they long for having children and that's not granted to them And I don't know what really I could say to you that would make you feel better about your situation because you have a hole or something that's missing in your life that you desire right now. Or perhaps uh, you've you've lost the child prematurely or young. And it's painful even to see the, the beauty of other children as it reminds you of your own loss and pain that you're experiencing. I can assure you that the Lord feels the pain of your loss and gives you the appropriate comfort. And for those maybe who never had children and, and who are not called to have children, there is a place that you have in training the next generation. Uh, not to the same intensity as those that are parents, but in terms of mentoring. There's the whole world of mentoring, of which we've talked about before at times, from time to time, that you can invest in the life of someone Who is going to be the next generation? Who's going to form the next generation? And we see examples of that in the scripture of people that were mentored. You know, for example, Moses mentored Joshua and Caleb and those were the ones that succeeded him. You know, after the book of, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses passed away and the responsibility was passed on to Joshua. And so there's a tremendous mentoring relationship that took place there over many years. And those are opportunities in which you have if you are single or not, not married. Or if you are a married couple with no children. There are ways in which you can invest in the next generation through mentoring that has tremendous kingdom impact. There's a, a poem, a song that I would like to read, and a poem. I had intended actually to read the song earlier um it's connected to the words of jesus when he said let the little children come to me when the adults uh, the disciples felt children were a nuisance and they should they're in our way and they should be sent away it's called let the little children up before dawn and out the door what in this world are we striving for we already have much more than our time affords struggling up the ladder offers such little reward If we're heroes to strangers and strangers to our children, we won't stand blameless before the Lord. Train up a child as he should go. He won't turn away when he is old. Lord, give us the wisdom that we need. Kids learn a little from what we say, much more from what they see. If they see us filling our lives with everything but Jesus How will they know it's him they need? He said, let the little children, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You know he loves the little ones. So mothers and fathers, let's follow the Savior and cherish the treasure we have in daughters and sons. May the Lord richly bless us as we ponder on these words. Amen.